This morning we come in our study of Genesis to chapter 16, verses 7 through 16. These are the words of God. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Barrett. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Our God and Father, we pray, open this wondrous word to us. Let us see it, Lord, in all of its richness. Let us see the glory of you and who you are and your ways with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our setting this morning for this text, of course, is a spring along one of the desert roads from Canaan to Egypt. Hagar is making her way to the land of her birth. You remember her mistress Sarai had um, come up with the proposal that she would give her maid Hagar to her husband Abram, kind of like a surrogate mother. Um, Sarai is uh, feeling uh, desperate, frustrated um, with the promise uh, for a son, a seed, and her continued barrenness. And of course, all of this unraveled as we saw last week. So Hagar becomes quickly pregnant, but Hagar, quite naturally, according to human nature, feels like she should be a wife on equal status with Sarah. She should be the, the wife of Abram. And so the idea that this is going to be kind of a surrogate child, that unravels as well. Um, Sarai becomes even more frustrated, and at wit's end, Abram gives uh, Hagar into the power of Sarah's hand to do whatever she wants. She treats her harshly, as the text says, and so now Hagar has fled, and she is returning to the land of her birth. Now, she comes to this spring because these desert roads have to pretty much go along to an occasional spring or well so that there's water for travelers. And if you spent much time in Scripture, you can't help but notice that if a scene begins at a spring or a well, something significant is about to happen and that something significant is going to involve the coming of new life in one way or another. 
It may be a new marriage, as with Moses, who met his future wife Zipporah at a well, and he delivered her and her sisters from hostile shepherds and watered their flocks. Or it may be the new life of eternal life, as with Jesus and the Samaritan woman meeting at Jacob's well in John chapter 4. So here in Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord is going to bring new life to Hagar and to her son in the womb. Now the angel of the Lord literally means the messenger of Jehovah or the messenger of Yahweh. Remember, angel is not a being term, it's a function term. It simply means messenger. That word, whether in Hebrew or Greek, is applied to many persons other than heavenly beings, which is what we think of angels. When we hear angel, we think heavenly being, but that's not what it means. It means messenger. If we were going to use a being term, it would be seraph or cherub or seraphim, plural, cherubim. But here, the messenger of Jehovah or Yahweh meets uh, Hagar at this spring in the middle of the desert. Now, this phrase, the angel of the Lord, or occasionally the angel of God, appears some 69 times in the Old Testament. And if you look at all of those texts, uh, you will see a very definite pattern. Initially, the angel of the Lord appears to be a normal man. But as he interacts with the person whom he is speaking or the persons to whom he is appearing, it becomes apparent as the conversation goes along that he is not a man at all. In fact, he is God himself. Now, how can he be God himself and also the messenger of the Lord? Well, to be precise, it is God the Son. It is God the Son, the Son being the spokesman for the the Father and for the Trinity. The, The Son is the one described as the Word at the first part of the Gospel of John. And so it is God the Son manifesting himself as a man before he actually became a man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the pre-incarnate Christ who is appearing to Hagar at this spring. And at first he just seems to be a a man there who begins talking to her. But as the conversation goes along, we're going to see more and more clues that this is not a man. This is not who he seems to be. This is, in fact, God. It is God the Son. The first clue to Hagar is that this man, this apparent man, knows things that he could not know if he were just a man. Verse 8, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? Well, he knows her name, even though he's never met her as far as she knows. He knows her mistress's name, and he knows her position as a maid. He knows all of that. And then he asks a question, a little bit nosy. Where have you come from, and where are you going? Now, we get the feeling, given the fact of all of his knowledge that he's displayed so far, and and I think 
Hagar probably thought the same thing. You get the feeling that he already knows the answer to these questions. Where have you come from and where are you going? You get the feeling that this is like God's question in the Garden of Eden. Adam, where are you? He's not really asking for information. He already knows the information. He's giving an opportunity for confession. He's given an opportunity for coming clean. And so he says, where have you come from? Where are you going? And it's like Hagar senses that this is not a person to lie to. And so she is completely truthful. I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. Again, it is doubtful, highly, that Hagar would kind of communicate that kind of personal information to some stranger. The second clue that this is not really a man is the authority that he assumes over Hagar. Verse 9, as soon as she says, I'm fleeing from the face of my mistress Sarai, he responds, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Now, if he's just some dude at this spring, that's kind of rude. His questions are kind of rude. But this is not a man. Return to your mistress, submit yourself under her hand. What he commands her to do is certainly not what Hagar wanted to hear. She's fleeing from her for a reason. And this man, apparently, he does not sugarcoat this command at all, nor does he explain it. He doesn't get into Sarah was right and you were wrong or you were right and she was wrong. He doesn't get into any of that. He simply commands her what to do. And implied in that is the suggestion that this is the path of blessing for you and your child, even though it may not seem like it. It is, and this is what I'm telling you to do. The third clue that this is not really a man but is God, is when he prophesies Hagar's blessing and her child's blessing. And in prophesying the blessing, he indicates that he is the one who's going to do the blessing. Verse 10, I will multiply your descendants, literally your seed, singular. I will multiply your seed, singular, exceedingly, so that they, literally he, singular, shall not be counted or shall not be able to be measured for multitude, for greatness. So specifically, he's talking about her child in the womb. Now, a great multitude may come from this child, but we have to see the Hebrew here so we get the fact of how he's communicating it. He's communicating this blessing the same way that he's communicated to Abram about the promised one that will be born of Abram and Sarai. He, he, he refers these promises to your seed, singular. And he's doing the same thing here with Hagar. The fourth clue that this is not really a man is that he foretells or prophesies how this will come to pass. Verses 11 and 12. Behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. How does he know that? Although, I will say, I remember when my wife was pregnant at a different time, perfect strangers would walk up to her and say, 
you're, you're having a boy or you're having a girl. And, and she would go, oh, you think so? Oh, I know so. I don't know how they apparently know this, but they portend to. But in this case, he really knows. You have a child, it is a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. He presumes to name the child because the Lord has heard your affliction. Ishmael means the Lord hears. He shall be a wild man, literally, he shall be a wild donkey. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of his brethren. So in all these ways, she comes to see by the end of this conversation, this is not a man. I am talking to God. I am talking to God here face to face. Then in verses 13 and 14, we see Hagar's response two characteristics about her response that are example for all of us. Number one, she responds in faith. Then she called the name of the Lord, Yahweh, who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. That's what she calls his name. You are the God who sees. In in addition to being Yahweh or Jehovah, in addition to being the great I am, the eternal, infinite, never-changing one, the never-failing one, the promise-making, promise-keeping God. In addition to that, he is the God who sees. And she says, have I also seen here him who sees me? What's grabbing her, what's, what's knocking her over here, what she cannot take in is that the infinite God of the universe is not just seeing her as part of the fact that he sees everything that he knows everything, that he is everywhere present. As it says in Proverbs 15:3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. That's not the way she's talking about this. That's not what's overwhelming her. What's overwhelming here is the special way that God has seen her, the special way that God's eye is upon her and his ear is open to her because Ishmael means God not only sees, God also hears. It's the way that Psalm 34, 15 talks about. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. In other words, he sees everything. He sees everybody, but the way God watches his children is different. His eyes are fixed on every one of his children. His ear is always open to their cry. In other words, God sees me. What she's saying is God cares for me. God loves me. That's what that's what's overwhelming her at this point. That's what's blowing her away. The God of the universe cares about me, Sarah the Egypt I mean Hagar the Egyptian maidservant who's running away, walking through the desert, trying to get back to Egypt. The living God has met with her. That's that's what's blowing her away. And it says in verse 14, therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. That means well of the living one who sees me. The living one who loves me. So she's talking about the same way that David is in Psalm 138 verse 6. Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly. Literally he sees the lowly in the sense of he fixes his eyes upon the lowly, the humble. 
but the proud he knows from afar. In one sense, God knows the humble and the proud equally because he knows them exhaustively. He knows everything about them. But in another way, he knows one up close, personal, and the other one far away. And that's what Hagar is talking about. It's the fact that David knows that God's eye is fixed upon him that he says in verse 7, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me because God sees me, because God loves me, God cares for me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. In other words, God's plans for me, the plans for which he saved me and made me one of his child, nothing is going to thwart those plans. There may be many twists and turns and hills and hardships and afflictions that I have to walk as part of that plan, but God's plan for me is not going to be frustrated. God will perfect that plan because God sees me. So Hagar responds secondly in obedience, faith and obedience. That is a great combination. If you study them in scripture, you will see they are really presented as two sides of the same coin. Believe and obey. Paul talks about in the opening to Romans, it's how Christ saved him and commissioned him as an apostle uh, apostle to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. And we see here with Hagar, we see faith. And we see the obedience of faith, verses 15 and 16. Now here, it doesn't give us the detail, just jumps to the end of this episode. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. It jumps and gives us this conclusion, but we can tell from what it tells us that Hagar was obedient. This could not be stated if she did not, in fact, go back and submit herself to Sarai. Also, we see that obviously she related what happened here at the spring to Abram. He, in obedience to what the angel of the Lord said, names the son Ishmael, God hears. So where is he going to get this? Hagar told him all about it. Presumably, she told Sarai as well. So we see see that she obeyed, even though it was not what she wanted to hear. She trusted in what the Lord was telling her, and so she did the very thing that she would never otherwise do. Only faith would produce this obedience. So at the end of this episode, we see Hagar and Sarai Each of them, by God's calling, by his providence, has to live with both glory and humility. For Hagar, returning and submitting herself under Sarai, this is humbling. Only faith, as I said, would lead her to do this. It's counterintuitive under her circumstances, and it is certainly counter to fallen human nature. At the same time, if she must live with this humility, she also lives with glory because she's recounted the visit with the angel of the Lord 
Abram has named her son Ishmael according to the word of the Lord. That means Abram has publicly acknowledged Ishmael as his son, as indeed his firstborn son, which means he has also publicly acknowledged Hagar as his wife. So you see that she has humility and she has glory. Now this sounds an awful lot like God's path for every single one of us in one way or another. It is pretty much the Christian life that we are called to live with humility in a lot of different ways and with glory in a lot of different ways. The thing is, we can usually feel the humility part. We can't always feel or see or understand the glory part. And that's certainly the case with Sarai. Now, you see, Hagar can see both. She gets the humility part. She knows what that is. She feels that. But she also gets the glory part. That's obvious. It's right now. It's evident. With Sarai, it's not. Sarai gets the humility part, certainly, because all of her plans have not just not worked out. They have backfired spectacularly. Now her husband has a second wife at Sarai's instigation. The resultant child is not in any sense Sarai. She's not under, the child's not under her authority, but under Abram and Hagar and is named by Abram himself with a name assigned by God. So Sarai's left with this ambiguity and suspense. The humility part for her, she gets that. Can't be missed. Is easy to see. The glory part for Sarai, she can't see. We can see it because we're the audience. We're we're reading the story. She's in the moment. She can't see it. She's going to wait another 13 years, 13 plus years, before God definitively shows her the glory that he's going to shed upon her. Part of the glory, the part of the buildup of the glory, the greatness of the glory, is the fact that she has to wait so long in this kind of ambiguity. Think about the fact, not only has uh, her husband now got another wife due to Sarai herself, not only does she have the humility of that, but God himself has appeared to Hagar. God himself has not appeared to Sarai. God himself appeared, made promises to her, blessings to her, named Hagar's child, is now Abram, her husband's firstborn son. There will not be another firstborn son. This is the firstborn son. You see, at the very time that we can see that the story is ramping up for an even greater glory than what has been uh, given to Hagar, is it's, being, it's like it's being held behind the dam until it's going to come forward. We see that. We see how much God loves Sarai. The fact that he loves Hagar doesn't mean he doesn't love Sarai. We see that the spotlight is really on her. That's not the way she feels. 
she feels like she's off in the back corner of the stage in the dark where nobody can see her. She feels like she's been forsaken and forgotten. She feels like there's nothing for her but humility and dust, the forgotten one. Hagar has named a well, the well of the living God who sees me. Sarah is wondering, does he see me? Apparently not. He sees my maid, Hagar. I don't see that he sees me. So she has the glory, but she, unlike Hagar, cannot see it. And she can't feel it. But God is still going to bring it. Because the, the one she will give birth to, who is the promised one, Hagar's son, Ishmael, is going to be blessed. Abram's firstborn son is going to be blessed, but is not the son of promise that the one Sarai is going to bear is. It is necessary because this son of promise, Isaac, is a living picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is absolutely essential that this one must be miraculously born. God has blessed Hagar, but that's a normally born child in the normal blessed providence of God. The one who comes from Sarah, it must be a miraculously born child. And not only must it be miraculous, it must be obviously and undeniably miraculous to anyone who hears. Not only is it necessary that this child, this son, be born to a woman who has been in barren her entire life, it is also necessary to be born to a barren woman who is now past childbearing age, who is too old to have children. It has to be no way that it can be denied. That's necessary, you see, for this one to be the living picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we turn to application, I want us to see something this morning that's very important about uh, one of the ways in which God teaches us in Scripture. This is kind of like at a deeper level than what we find on the surface. And I want to bring this fact out by asking a, a, a question relating to our text. In Genesis 16, who is the Egyptian? That's the question. In Genesis 16, who is the Egyptian? Well, on the service, the answer to that is obvious. It's Hagar. She was born and raised in Egypt. The beginning of chapter 16 keeps saying over and over, Hagar, the Egyptian. Sarah had a maid who was an Egyptian. The Egyptian, the Egyptian, the Egyptian. But we need to ask that question as a deeper level. Spiritually, who is the Egyptian in this particular chapter? Who is acting like an Egyptian? Who is imitating the ways of Egypt? Now, because the answer is, it is Sarai. Now, to show you what I mean and to show you that I'm not just making up levels of interpretive uh, uh, nuance that goes beyond what God intends for his word, look at Revelation chapter 11 and verse 8 which refers to the great city, which is spiritually called Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, our Lord was not crucified in Cairo, 
was also not crucified in Rome or in Babylon. Our Lord was crucified in Jerusalem. But God, by the Spirit, says that Jerusalem is Egypt, spiritually speaking, in the first century when the book of Revelation was written. Why is that? Well, what was ancient Egypt known for in the Bible? Afflicting God's people. Persecuting God's people. Well, look at the book of Acts. Who was persecuting and afflicting God's new covenant people, the church, in the first century when the book of Revelation was written? It was the leadership establishment of the Jews centered in Jerusalem. So by the Holy Spirit, Jerusalem is called Egypt in Revelation. Egypt, spiritually uh, uh, speaking. Now that kind of theme, that kind of theme where uh, you have these multiple levels runs through the entire Bible. And the theme is that your status with God is not a matter of bloodline. It is not a matter of bloodline. It is not, which is why John the Baptist, when he comes preaching and he sees uh, the leadership of the Jews, the Pharisees, and so forth coming out, he says, don't say to yourself, don't even start to think to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. I have Abraham's blood in my veins. He said, that's, that's not the key. God can raise up those kind of children of Abraham from these rocks. The question is, do you have the faith of Abraham in your heart? If you don't, the blood of Abraham in your veins is not going to do a thing for you. And we see that running throughout the scripture. And the condition of our relationship with God at any given time is shown by this simple question. Who am I imaging right now? Who am I imitating right now? Whose character am I showing forth right now? Who am I emulating right now? That's what Jesus was talking about in John 8:44 when he talk, was talking to the religious leaders and he told them that even though they claimed God was their father, really they were of their father the devil. That's what he told him. Now, how does he know that? He says, well, because the desires of your father you want to do. Whose desires do you want to do? That's who your daddy is. Who's your daddy? That's the question. Whose desires do you want to do? Who are you imaging? Whose steps are you walking in? Jesus says you're trying to kill the son of God. That tells me who your father is the one whose path you are walking in. Now, this kind of thinking we see running throughout the Scripture. And with that in mind, let's go back to Genesis 16, remembering what Egypt stood for, the, the bowing down, the, the, the forcible bowing down of God's people, bowing them down with affliction, hardship, and persecution. So the question is, who is the one doing that in Genesis 16? Look at verse 6. It says, Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar. The Hebrew word there for harshly is the exact same word used of the Egyptians when they afflicted, same word, the Israelites 
in Exodus chapter 1, verse 11. You see, Scripture there is intentionally evoking the later Egyptian affliction of Israel when it describes Sarai's affliction of Hagar. Okay, now that starts messing with our minds because we're going, now wait a minute, are you saying, are you saying that Hagar is saved and Sarai is not? That Sarai is an unbeliever, an infidel? No. Sarah is set forth as an example of faith and godliness multiple times in the New Testament. But just like Abram, who the New Testament tells us is the father of all who believe, just as he was capable of being governed more by fear and self-preservation than faith in chapter 12 when he was in Egypt, so Sarai was capable of being governed more by impatience and her own devices in chapter 16. The fact that somebody over the course of their lifetime, big picture, is a tremendous believer and a godly person and a great example does not mean that they are not capable of having a downtime like Abram did in chapter 12, like Sarai did in chapter 16. In fact, if, if they never had any weaknesses like that show up, can they be, I mean, how much could we identify with them? They're, after all, they're supposed to be example for us, right? So looking, if they're capable of that, Abram and Sarah are our spiritual betters. If they're capable of imaging Egypt at a certain point, what does that say about us? We're very capable of doing the same thing. This is why it's important for us to see these different levels of meaning so that we get the full impact of what God is teaching us. So in this particular passage, Sarai is the one walking in the age of in the in this ways of Egypt. So the Egyptian is not the Egyptian. The Israelite is the Egyptian. See, we have to pay attention to that. You see the same thing with David and Uriah in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba. You know, David had taken her, committed adultery with her. Now she's pregnant. Uriah is out where David ought to be, out on the field of battle with the men of Israel. David has Uriah call back. He believes, I'll have Uriah call back. He'll go home to his wife. Then he'll think the child is his. It's all part of this cover-up. Uriah comes back, but he doesn't go home. He refuses to go home when his brothers are in the field of battle. He's not going to go home and enjoy his home when his brothers are on the field of battle. He's not going to do it. So David calls, uh, brings him back and he says, I'll get him drunk. Here, have a glass of wine. Have another one. Let's talk some more. It's a great conversation. Have another glass of wine. So he gets Uriah drunk. He still won't go home when his brothers are in the field of battle. So you have this thing where Uriah drunk is better than David sober in that instance. It doesn't change the fact that David is held forth for us as the man after God's own heart. That's what God said 
about David. And David was the shepherd king, the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And David to this day is the one who teaches us about true heart religion, true devotion to God, true piety. Most of the Psalms were written by the Holy Spirit through David. That is all true. But in this particular instance, you see, Uriah was not an Israelite. Uriah was a Hittite. He didn't have Abraham's blood in his veins. But in this particular circumstance, David is the Hittite and Uriah is the Israelite. You see? And if David is capable of that, see, we think, well, how can David be the man after God's own heart, right? Look at what he did. The point that the Bible is making is he really was the man after God's own heart. But he could still do this. And if he can, so can we. And so we have two important questions to always ask ourselves. One is a question, a big question, spanning over our whole life, big picture. Who am I imitating? Who am I imaging? What will be said about me when my whole life is looked at? Now, that I'm not putting a premium on how long somebody is a Christian. After all, we have the thief on the cross. How long does he have? A couple of hours, maybe? He's pinned to a Roman spit. Not a whole lot he can do. What he could do, he did do. His faith came out. He rebuked his fellow insurrectionist, telling him, hey, we deserve to be here. This man does not, and says to Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Jesus recognizes the faith. So I'm not putting the premium on the longevity, but I'm saying for whatever time that we have as believers, how would our life be characterized? Is it a life of faith, of trusting God in obedience? It's not going to be perfect obedience, but is that the big picture? But the second question we need to ask ourselves is, who am I imitating right now? Because even if it is true, when anybody looks at our life, big picture would say a man or woman of faith, of faithfulness, of service, of fruit, an example, an inspiration. That doesn't mean that we're imitating God right now, this day, this moment. We have to ask that question as well. And we have two things to remember as we ask those questions. Number one, God is the God who sees me. God is the God who sees me. That's the lesson. We cannot judge that by our feelings. Sarai felt like God is the God who has forgotten me. That's the way she felt. That's not the way it was, but that's the way she felt. God is the God who sees us. His eye is ever upon us. His ear is always open to us. And secondly, God works in all directions all the time. God works in all directions all the time. The fact that God uh, had chosen 
Sarai and his special favor and blessing and his special plans were upon her did not mean that God could not also love Hagar the Egyptian and also appear to her in the middle of the desert to call her to faith and obedience. And the fact that he loves Hagar doesn't mean that he's abandoning Sarah. Two things can be true at the same time. And God can work in multiple directions at the same time, and he does all the time. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.